Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Animation Fascination Podcast. I'm Mark Vibbert. Matt Quest couldn't join us again today, so filling in for him is another one of our site writers, Mr. John Huber. Hello. Uh, and also we have a returning guest to our show, Mr. Hal Hickel, who is an industrial light and magic visual effects animator. So stay tuned for later in the podcast when we'll be talking to him about Pacific Rim, which was a pretty awesome movie if you got to see that this past weekend. Uh, and if you haven't listened to our podcast before, this podcast focuses on the world of animation. Each episode, we feature an animated series or film from the past or present. Whether it's traditionally hand-drawn, computer-generated, or stop-motion, if it's animated, it's up for discussion. So stay tuned for a later in the episode. We'll be talking to Hal Hickel, and we'll be back in a few seconds with our new releases for the week. releases this week uh, and i've just tried this in the past before is that we can talk about some live action stuff just because a lot of the time live action inspires a lot of the things that we see in animated films so that's, that's what i'm going to talk about some of these this week uh the first one is wilford season two came out on blu-ray back in june but i just recently got it so i wanted to talk about it uh and did, have you seen the first season at all or have you seen the australian version john um, I've, I've watched a couple episodes of the first season, um, didn't really get into it, so I kind of let it go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been enjoying it. I like Elijah Wood a lot. Uh, I think the first season is actually on Netflix, since if people have Netflix. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I liked, one of the many reasons why I liked Tron Uprising so much, and I still hope there's some way to save that show, because I liked Tron Uprising a lot. But I, I like, like, just kind of like the weird kind of humor with the show. Uh, and I mean, if you want to see a darker version of it, watch the Australian version because that's a lot, lot darker than this the American remake version of it. But it, it actually stars uh, Jason Gann, who played Wilford in the Australian series too. So he's he's playing the same character he played in that. But I mean, I I enjoy it, and it, it's a it's definitely like a different kind of comedy. It's not for everybody. Uh, it's got a lot of good guest stars on it. Mary Steenburgen plays Elijah Wood's mother in it. Uh, and there's uh, Chris Klein plays uh, Elijah Wood's neighbor's fiance in the show. Um, so it's good to see him working again after the American Pie movies have ended. Um, but, but yeah, there's some special features on there with a blooper reel. Uh, Wilfred Ryan mashup, News at Noon with Jenna, deleted scenes, and then a short that's exclusive to the Blu-ray. So, I mean, if you like different kinds of comedy that that you think may, maybe not everybody might get, I would definitely check that out. It's it's on FX when it's on TV usually, and they have another great comedy on that on that network. In it's always Sunny Philadelphia, but apparently FX has also has a second network now. It's gonna be FXX, which sounds stupid, but apparently all shows like It's Always Sunny and Mulford are gonna be moving to that network and then and the league oh yeah and Le- yeah so, so basically all their comedies are moving to fxx i should have just called it like fx squared or, or something like that it sounds i don't know it just sounds, it sounds stupid just doubling the, the x but that's about it's about as cool as when sci-fi changed their name to sifi 
because that's that's really how you should pronounce it the way that it's S Y F Y. I don't I really don't know why they. I'm I'm going on a weird rant, but I don't I don't know why Sci-Fi changed their name to be being spelled like that when it was correctly spelled the other way and was fine. Nobody does being done that way. There's no explanation for it. No one can understand it. Somebody got paid a lot of money to do it, and now they get made fun of. Yeah, regularly. And also, I'll never know why why ECW wrestling is on Sci-Fi as well because that's not really science fiction. <laughs> I mean, it is fiction. It's not science fiction though. That's not but, extreme either. Yeah, and I, I remember actually when I didn't I did a film class a few years ago when I was in in college where we went to Universal and and Universal owns the Sci-Fi Channel, and one of the guys that we talked to that runs Sci-Fi, I was like. So, so why is ECW wrestling on, on sci-fi if it has nothing to do with science fiction? He's like, honestly, I have no idea myself. We we just owned it, and instead of... Uh, that was like the only network they could put it on that was different than, I guess, uh, USA at the time. So there there's the reason for that for people that watch wrestling, I guess. Um, going from one sport to another, 42, the Jackie Robinson story came out recently on July 16th and I actually saw it in theaters uh, uh, with with my wife on her anniversary so I saw it about two weeks before I got the or actually I got the blu-ray maybe a few days after I saw it in theaters because I got it a little bit early and so, so I think that's the fastest turnaround for myself for a movie I've seen in theaters and then had the blu-ray in my hands but because we saw it at like a dollar theater but I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I liked the story a lot. I liked the use of comedy in it because you don't really get that a lot with the biopics that are that are that are done in this era. And I liked Harrison Harrison Ford's portrayal in the film. And I, I really liked the actor that was playing Jackie Robinson in the movie as well too, Chadwick Boseman. And I, I'd heard rumors about him possibly playing the the Black Panther. The Marvel movies showing up, and I would definitely be interested in watching that if he was to play that character. Same here. I think he'd be great. Did you? And you said that you haven't seen Forty Two, right? I've not seen Forty Two. Um, like as I told you, I'm very steeped in the this backstory. Um, everything I've seen of Harrison Ford as Branch Rickey looks phenomenal. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Just I haven't got around to getting sitting down to watching it. Unfortunately, summer's really busy, but. Uh, um, I'm looking forward to it immensely. So I mean, I mean, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I would definitely recommend people checking it out. From there, we're gonna go to the next Warner Brothers release, which I would kind of wish I hadn't watched. Uh, Bullet to the Head with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> it's based off a comic book. Um... Yeah, it's based. It's based off a comic book. I liked Adewale Akinoye Agbaje in it because I liked Mr. Echo on Lost. I, I think I kind of think Sylvester Stallone at this point should maybe just stick to the Expendables movies or directing movies I, I didn't really really like this this movie at all i probably wouldn't suggest anybody to watch it unless you're a huge lost fan and you need to see every movie that the different actors show up in i mean it's got an audience i mean there are people yeah. that love that those type of movies i i enjoy watching those type of movies you check your brand at the door i've not seen it so i can't speak on it um i mean it looked like something that i would probably actually see though so i mean <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can deal with certain movies like this. I mean, I'm not opposed to... Uh, I think I, I'm only opposed to them like when they all become the, the same movie over and over again. Like, I like Jason Statham, 
But I feel like every single movie he does is the same movie in a different setting. I agree, but it, there's, you know right. that. I mean, it was the same back in the 80s with Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, especially with you know, Schwarzenegger, all those in the 80s. It was, you were seeing the same thing, the same one-liners, the same jokes. They played the same characters, no acting involved. And uh, again, I haven't seen Bullet to the Head, but it is something I do plan to see when it you know comes available, say on Netflix. And, and then maybe, and maybe Sylvester Stallone is just a, like not like my action hero guy because I think when I was a kid I liked Arnold Schwarzenegger a lot, so may, maybe that's that's why. But because I, I would I probably would have rather watched The Last Stand, even though I've heard that was bad, just because I like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So. I guess when you, when you come to films like this, you do have to kind of pick and choose the ones that that you can stand, even if you know it's not going to be a good film going into it. So, right. Going from there, we're going to actually talk about some animated uh, TV shows that were on in the early '90s. Uh, one I I never watched when it was on TV, but I I do remember seeing commercials for it like all the time when I was getting ready really early in the morning for school. Uh, it was Liberty's Kids, and it was it was done by DHX Media and Mill Creek Entertainment. It featured the voices of Walter Cronkite as Benjamin Franklin, and then included guest voices of award-winning film legends such as Annette Bening, Dustin Hoffman, Michael Douglas, Arnold Schwarzenegger, bringing it back, Sylvester <laughs> Sloan, bringing it back, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Billy Crystal, Ben Stiller, and Liam Neeson. And, and at, at first when I read read this uh that Liam Neeson did, did a voice in it I was telling my wife I really hoped that it was Abraham Lincoln but then I, w- I was reading what the actual like time period was for and it's around the Re- Revolutionary War so I'm like well he's not he's not doing Abraham Lincoln's voice so I, I can kind of see I'm I'm assuming when I when I watch it, I couldn't really tell but I think Michael Douglas was doing the voice of George Washington in it and, and it's cool to see where uh, these different voices. I won't give it away for like some people um, if they want to watch it and be surprised by the, the voice actors. But it, it's interesting to see where some of them show up and which characters of historical significance of their voicing. And I remember when I saw commercials for this, I always thought like the three kids in it had traveled back in time and were were like part of like then they had to you know live in the Revolutionary War time period. But and so when I when I read the back of this, the, the DVD case, it didn't really help my confusion at first because it says travel back in time with Benjamin Franklin's teenage reporters as they confront the real and physical dangers of the American revolutions. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I guess they didn't actually travel back in time. But and and then like they kind of deal with these two kids. There's one that's really he's like one of the rebels, an American colonist, and then Sarah, who's a young English reporter. Uh, and forced to choose between friendship and allegiance to her country. And all the while, they have to look after a mischievous Henry, a French boy whose comical escapades constantly lead to trouble. <laughs> I mean, it is it is kind of a, it is a good show for little kids to watch because, I mean, it does teach them about that time period, and it, it, it is history, historically accurate to a point, except for the, that these kids didn't really exist. Uh, but it it is it is a good way to you know make it exciting for kids to watch and make history fun for them and not you know, just for them to have to read it in a book or learn about it in school. It makes it accessible and like it's accurate to the way they treat different people in the thing. So like you can see how 
people of different classes and races and whatnot were were treated back then and learn different historical facts through this if if you're a kid and it was it was nominated for an emmy and humanitas humanitas award so i I think it's definitely worth checking out to to have your kids watch if, if you have them and there's only 40 episodes so you don't have to watch all of it but and it's definitely worth at least checking out at first. Did, did you ever, have you ever heard about that before I just started talking about it? I've heard of it. I've never watched it. Um, sounds very interesting. My degree's in history. Um, so I probably would enjoy um, the, the you know, animated take on, on our nation's history. So um, sounds great. I'd, look, I'd like to look forward to watching it. Definitely. And then the last thing is one of my favorite animated shows of all time. It was on, it was one of my favorite Nicktoons. Uh, outdone only by Doug. That, that's still my favorite Nicktoon. But Angry Beavers, the complete series, is coming out on July 30th from Shout Factory. And actually, I mean, this will come out after we're done. But if you're at Comic Con, they're giving out posters for the Angry Be- Beavers complete series and Rockless Wonder Life complete series that they had done. And I wish I could be there to, to get one of them because I really like the show. Every time I have an Angry Beavers. Uh, t-shirt and every time I wear it I get a compliment on it by by some somebody and I actually wore it on one film that I, I had worked on that Jesse Eisenberg was doing and he even uh, complimented me on my Angry Beavers shirt so Angry Beavers even gets approval from an Academy Award nominated actor so you should check out Angry Beavers and all the entire series is on Netflix but if you want to own it and have it in your hands and watch it Wherever a DVD player or Blu-ray player is, you can do that and just know that you own the Angry Beavers complete series set. <laughs> Did you ever watch the Angry Beavers, John, or is it is it a little uh-huh. too young for you, basically? Well, I mean, I, I've never stopped watching cartoons, but I, I did not partake in the Angry Beavers. I've seen a couple episodes, um, but not enough to you know speak on it. Well, I mean, it, it was good, and you should check it out, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, So that is our new releases for the week. We'll be back in a few seconds with our news. And we're back with our news for the week. The, the first thing we're going to be talking about is some new frozen treats from Disney. Uh, Disney released uh, via uh, Yahoo movies uh, some stills, character stills and bios from their new 53rd uh, animated feature Frozen that's going to come out this November. So we're finally getting some really good like in-depth kind of looks at Elsa and Anna and some of the the other characters in the film as well. And there's also a interview on there with the Frozen directors Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. So definitely check that out, especially if you're really interested in checking this movie out. Uh, like I said, there's little biographies about each of the characters. There's about eight photos. There's uh, Anna, the Duke of Wesselton. Uh, there's also Elsa, obviously, and then there's Hans, uh, Kristoff. 
Marshmallow, which is uh, one of Elsa's, you know, big snow minion kind of abominable snowman guys. Uh, there's Oaken, who's like a, who's a shop owner in the film, trading post and a sauna. And then there's also Olaf, the snowman, and Sven, Kristoff's uh, faithful reindeer. So definitely check those out if you're interested in seeing that movie. What did you did, have you got a chance to see the pictures? I I looked at uh, some of the stills. I didn't get into the in depth of reading the characterizations and all that. Um, I like the look of the film. I think it's going to be uh, amazing uh, that that crystallized and the blue motif. Um, I, I think it's going to be you know visually stunning. And it's yeah. been a it's been a while since we've seen something like this. It's going to have that same artistic feel throughout. Looking Definitely. forward to it. Uh, and it's cool to finally see some final rendered versions of all these characters and see what they're all going to be looking look like in the film and how they may possibly tie into one another and all that so definitely looking forward to seeing a full theatrical trailer later this year maybe it'll be in front of planes and if not that i'm not sure what else they would, they might put in front of maybe cloud with the chance of meatballs but disney doesn't usually uh you know put put some other trailers in front of other you know their competitors, I guess. The next bit of news is that Disney, or not Disney, The Simpsons is turning 25. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe is returning to Springfield to voice uh, another character on the show. And like a plans new guest star toy line. Uh, so on September 29th of this year, the show will turn 25 when it begins its 25th season. Uh, and and with that, Daniel Radcliffe will be coming back. He won't be playing the the son of Dracula like he did the first time on the show, uh, but I I guess he'll be playing a character that's more in line with a combination of Holden Caulfield from A Catcher in the Rye, uh, Finney from a separate piece, and the kids in Lord of the Flies, only a little bit more screwed up. <laughs> so I'm definitely looking forward to that because Holden Caulfield and Finney from uh, Catcher in the Rye and Separate Piece are both actually two of the only books that I was assigned to read in high school that I actually read and enjoyed, and I, I really liked those characters. So I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing exactly how this character is, because uh, I mean this is usually the closest how we'll get to seeing Holden Caulfield in a movie or TV show since the the rights for that will never, you know, pretty much be allowed to be adapted into a film or TV series. Right. Yeah, and then uh, NECA is also putting out a to toy line to celebrate the 25 years with uh, Simpson kind of cartoon likenesses of people that have been on, on the show. James Brown, Tom Hanks, Hugh Hefner, Yao Ming, and Kid Rock will be the first five fig figures, which is a, a very eclectic uh, mix of, of people. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see what those look like, and maybe they'll possibly preview those at Comic-Con uh, later this week. Well, Playmates also had a uh, um, a line of the guest voices on their their Simpsons toy run, um, but not of Tom Hanks and James Brown. They were more of the uh, the Troy McClure's. Um, there were a couple others, but not in this level of, of especially if Tom Hanks is playing Tom Hanks, you know, and get the Simpsonized version of Tom Hanks and Kid Rock and Hugh Hefner. Um, who wouldn't want a Simpsonized Hugh Hefner on their desk? So um, it's going to be kind of cool. Get your Simpsonized Kid Rock right next to your James Brown. <laughs> not on my desk. <laughs> yeah, Jake Brown. Yes, I think the Tom, I think the Tom Hanks one might look cool too. So, 
Especially it's from the, the movie version. Oh yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely looking forward to checking all those things out, seeing or hearing Daniel Radcliffe's voice again on the show. And I thought it was funny the first time he was on the show because obviously they were trying to make fun of Twilight and Harry Potter at the same time. So why not have Harry Potter voice Edward, more or less? So I, I liked that. I thought that was pretty funny. The next thing we're going to be talking about is the Pixar theory that hit the internet this past week or so. Uh, and it, it broke a lot of people's brains. To some people, thought it was just a lot of words and nonsense put together. Uh, we're representing those two factions talking about that in this episode today. And some some stuff seems like it could work. Obviously, I, I don't think that Pixar is actually like going for this when they're making all the films since it's I mean, maybe it was. I mean, I, I asked the people that we've had on the show that work at Pixar what they thought about and I haven't heard anything back from any of them. So maybe it's a, a tightly sealed Pixar secret and they, they don't want to comment on it. So to, to give away the, the goose, I guess. But basically what this person was talking about uh, was John Negroni uh, on his blog was came up with this theory where basically in the timeline Brave is the first and last movie uh, and then so yeah, I, I guess basically the, the easiest way to explain it is that the way that all humans in are, I mean that the way that the an, all the animals kind of have like humanistic like the way that they they act and habits and whatnot in, in the Pixar films can be attributed to the fact that the witch in the in Brave changes humans into animals, you know, like like the bears and whatnot. Uh, and then it also shows like different ways that like the animals evolved to be more and more like that, like going with with Remy and Ratatouille, uh, Doug in Up, uh, and then there's references to uh, by and large corporation. Uh, kind of being part of both Toy Story and, and Up, and like they were the corporation that bought Carl out of his house, and that uh, eventually that's why the Earth is decayed several hundred years in the future. I, I was trying to figure out where like The Incredibles took place in this, and I guess it would still take place in the 50s and whatnot, but I'm still trying to figure out like Turbo, I mean, not Turbo. Uh, exactly where that all takes place. And then it kind of assumes that from that, uh, with how those those features went to the animals, that they ended up starting going to these machines like Wally and acting that way. And then many years in the future, or maybe in between Wally, or in between, say, Toy Story 3 and, and Wally all the stuff from the cars series happened in in on earth in that in those eight that 800 year lapse who knows what happened to the cars in between then and now uh and then like all in alls was like you know trying trying to you know become make the the world a a cleaner place for the gas and whatnot stuff like that and then apparently the tree that's growing out of the boot that Wally had the plant in is the tree from A Bug's Life. And A Bug's Life 
is is time timeline wise after all of these and you see like it's basically like a barren kind of like wasteland just there and and how the ants are acting humanistic in that as well and then i don't remember they kind of talk about newt but i guess they they figured out how newt could figure into that as well even though newt didn't end up happening and then monsters inc still takes place on earth it's just really really far into the future after animals that have those humanistic uh abilities and uh, what they do basically evolve into these monster-like creatures and then use these doors as a form of time travel to go back to the human world when the humans were still living here and whatnot and to scare them to into getting their energy and whatnot uh, and and the way and then they also figure that when Randall gets sent to the trailer uh, with the Pizza Planet truck out in front of it, that it doesn't look all beat up and everything. There's lights and everything, but then in a Bug's Life, which would take place timeline-wise after this, all the grass is like burnt up. There's not a tree there anymore. That, as you can see, like in the same shot, the trailer's all beat up, and it doesn't appear like anyone's living there. So this all goes back to that the witch from Brave is actually Boo from Monsters, Inc. And this can be seen because she carved pictures of Sully on different pieces of wood in there, as well as the Pizza Planet truck, which wouldn't make sense, I guess, unless she was Boo and remembered seeing the Pizza Planet truck. And the reason why she's in the, the past now, uh, I don't really remember any of that, except that other than she becomes a witch. And that's why she disappears in between doors, because she saw that that's what Sully did, so that's kind of what she's doing. So, and then, then they're assuming that some something will also tie in with this for the good dinosaur when that comes out as well. So, what do you think? Well, I mean, you can do this with anything. You can sit down and take two things and compare and contrast. Um, a lot of them are stretches. And, and very key points where he needs to expound on the theory. Um, he just washes it away as um, we have to just to believe that this is the way it is, and where you need a solid binding fact at that point in his theory. That's when he, he softens and just kind of whitewashes over it. Um, it's, it's a whole lot of stretch. I mean, it, it's fun to do. Um, I've done it plenty of times sitting around with friends, um, but um, I guess if you look at it, I mean, there are some things there that uh, that correlate with each other. And, um, I mean, you have to kind of just go with it to understand it, to, to believe in it. But um, it's not set in stone. It's not real. I mean, it, it, they don't do this. There's no way in hell they're doing this. Um, so it's, it, I don't know, it's fun to talk about, but um, I'm just, it, it's all coincidental. It's yeah. somebody with too much time on their hands sitting down and, uh, you know, finding a way to make everything connect. I mean, kids have been getting stoned and doing that since, you know, the dawn of time. Yeah. Wizard of Oz, Dark Side of the Moon. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, like the, the first time you read it, it kind of, you know, it makes you think about it for a minute. And then the more and more you think about it, you're like, hmm, maybe not so much. But like, because I mean, like even with like the DreamWorks movies, they they use a lot of this, like the same characters because they've already made those models. Plus they like having Easter eggs to... All their films they made, like in Flushed Away, there's an Alex, 
line stuffed animal in there. And then to that, I think there's stuffed um, slugs from Flushed Away in another DreamWorks film. And then, like, even if if you, when uh, when Hugh Jackman's character in Flushed Away is picking out a DVD to watch, if you pause that, you can see that half the films that he goes across are DreamWorks animated films. Like, and and some of them are just DreamWorks like live action films. So it's it's funny to to pause that and see exactly what films they have on there. Well, I mean, there's a difference between an Easter egg for the yeah. fans and you know so some cohesive scientific theory that you know ex- expands on the entire realm of narrative. It, yeah, it's just coincidental. It's Definitely. it's there for us, not for science. <laughs> yeah. If any, if anything, the, the Pixar theory is, is a nice bit of fan fiction to to show how all of these worlds would fit in one another if that is actually what they were trying to do so yeah, i don't fault a guy for that i mean it's Definitely. an interesting read and it's it's funny how he put it all together but you know it's uh the way the internet grabbed it as if it were like the greatest thing ever and like this was a published you know theory it was just shocking I mean, is that what we've come to so yeah. but going going from that uh so i believe either later this month or in august the Marvel special we've been talking about it for a while on Phineas and Ferb, at least since last year when we had Drake Bell on the show, and he kind of let it slip that he was doing a voice for Spider-Man and that. Uh, now, next, around sometime next year, they're going to be doing a Phineas and Ferb Star Wars special, which, if if any any series on Disney uh, that they could choose from to do... to use like basically what they have these properties that they have now if they were going to use any show that they have i'm glad this is the show that they're doing it with because this is the perfect show to do it with just because the show has endless possibilities of things they can do especially because the way that they're doing the episode is it's not going to be Phineas and for in their own universe but they've had a few episodes where uh it's the characters but like in a different setting like in ancient china or in space or doing something else or like cavemen or something like that. So that's kind of what they're doing with this is that they're inserting Phineas and Ferb into the universe of star Wars. And basically the episode begins a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in summer. Uh, Phineas and Ferb are living happily on Tatooine, just one moisture farm over from Luke Skywalker. They love simply hanging out and creating new adventures under the twin suns, but find themselves thrust into global rebellion when the plans for blowing up the Death Star accidentally fall into their hands. So I'm assuming instead of uh, showing up near Luke's house, that, or R2-D2 and 3PO showing up near Luke's house, they end up at Phineas and Ferb's place. Uh, now that fate has suddenly pulled them into the fight for freedom, they must go in search of a pilot who can take them to the Rebels so they can hand over the plans. Complicating matters, Candace has a stormtrooper-like intent on busting Rebels, and chases Phineas and Ferb across the galaxy in hopes of retrieving the Death Star plans. Meanwhile, back on the Death Star, Darth Darth and Schmertz, uh, so Dr. Doofenshmirtz as, as a Darth, a low-level Darth, has created a force-powered Sithinator that he plans to use against the Rebel Alliance. Agent P, working undercover for the Rebellion, is dispatched to stop him, but quickly gets trapped in Carbonite. Then things take a take a startling turn when Ferb is accidentally hit by the full blast of Dr. Darth and Schmertz and Nader and becomes an evil Sith. 
So I, I'm pretty excited about this coming out next year. When I tell my son, he's going to freak out just as much as he freaked out when I told him they were doing the Phineas and Ferb Marvel special. So it'll, it'll be pretty cool for him. I mean, I'll enjoy it too, but it'll be pretty cool for him to see two of his favorite things combining once again. What do you, what do you think about it? I, I like the idea. I mean, it's like the uh, Robot Chicken Star Wars episodes. I mean, they're they're funny. Um, I'm, I mean, we knew things like this were going to happen when Disney acquired Lucasfilm. Yeah. Um, for the Marvel thing. I mean, it was just the first part. I, I think you're going to see more stuff like this. Um, Maybe we'll see the Muppets with Phineas and Ferb soon. Yeah, our Muppets do, you know, Star Wars completely. The things like that are going to start happening. And I think we as fans just have to kind of brace ourselves that uh, and not not hate it and just embrace it. I mean, I played the crap out of Star Wars Angry Birds. So and you know, I had no problem with it. It's there's it's, an Angry Birds Star Wars 2 coming out. Yeah, and this is the world we live in. And, and I mean, you can't. You can't hope to keep things pure anymore. You're going to have these kind of mix-ups or, or mixtures or amalgams. And, uh, you know, it sounds like it's going to be fun. You know, yeah. what you just said sounds great. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of tongue-in-cheek. Phineas Ferb, great show, kind of transcends generations. So, I mean, we'll see if, if they can pull it off. Yeah. I mean, me and my wife watched that show even when, my, my, when our son is asleep. So Exactly. <laughs> And, I mean, Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh have worked on shows like Family Guy and Simpsons in the past. So it's it's like that same kind of sensibility of, of comedy just aimed more at a kid's level but still accessible to adults. So that's why I really like that show. And, and talking about Comic-Con like we have on this up or a little bit is that they did they did an episode or like where they went to a convention and like Seth MacFarlane did a voice and so did Kevin Smith and it was funny to see exactly how how they made fun of conventions like that and I mean I mean they make constant references and stuff to like this on the show anyway so the fact that they can actually use the actual licensed property now on the show is awesome for the for the creators of it and the people involved with the show so i mean i'll be i'll be there to watch the the muppets finish and Ferb crossover if they do it or say if buzz lightyear shows up from star command and finish and Ferb or something like that because i mean they can do that too if they if they really wanted to so mm-hmm. i'm so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what a what it looks like when it comes out and i'm sure it'll be just as funny as all the other episodes of Phineas and Ferb. And to the people, I, I remember when I, I saw the trailer for Mission Marvel on, on YouTube and like all the people hating on it. And when I, and I'm sure half of them have never even watched Phineas and Ferb, so they don't know what kind of show it is for it to be, you know, using the Marvel characters in a way that, that, that they are. So I think some people should watch the show before they find such a negative thing to, thread it and tying it into the other beloved properties like Marvel and Star Wars. So, Well, I mean, and, and this works actually as a great segue to our last bit of news here. Um, you know, the Family Guy Star Wars crossover, um, at least the first two parts of it were amazing. They, um, they really nailed it. The last part was god-awful, one of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen, but... Which uh, which I've even heard uh, Seth MacFarlane say by the time they got to that they were kind kind of really tired with the the first two they had done and they couldn't put as much I guess effort into the third one as they did with the first two. 
So, I mean, the precedence is there to taking, you know, these beloved situations and characters and putting it into um, something that doesn't belong there. There's no way in heck that Family Guy should have done Star Wars, but they did it so well, um, you know, at least the first two parts. And, uh, you know, that so, and Family Guy has its own following of fans that may or may not be Star Wars fans. And there are people that love Star Wars that hate Family Guy, but everyone agrees that those first two episodes were very funny. Yeah. And I, I didn't watch Family Guy for a long time and then i watched i've and pretty much still I, I i don't really watch family guy like i like i used to when i was younger but i've watched that that trilogy of those episodes so i i mean i think that's cool like when they, they can do stuff like that like like you were saying with robot chicken too and they just I mean, we just talked about it in the last episode with the dc uh robot chicken special too so and they're doing another volume of that so I think it's cool when the people that own these properties allow them to be used in different ways and they can laugh at like certain things about that property to begin with. So, Right. And... Go ahead. Uh, be- before we segue to the other thing, I'm, I'm going to screw up the segue a little bit. Uh, with another Kingdom Hearts video game coming out, they can only make that Kingdom Hearts video game better because they have access to Pixar stuff, they have access to Star Wars... I'm still not really sure. I, I know since Lucasfilm was owned by Disney, I'm still not really sure the property stuff with Indiana Jones and how that works because I know there's something special with that and Paramount still um, and Marvel. So all of those things could possibly show up in a Kingdom Hearts 3 game, which I'm, I'm hoping some of them do just because like Tron showed up. I mean, that was already a Disney thing, but Tron showed up in, in Kingdom Hearts 2. So I'm hoping some more stuff like that shows up in a third Kingdom Hearts game. And then coming back to Family Guy and whatnot like that, uh, we we talked about a little bit earlier in the news section the the Simpsons. So let's put those two together. Uh, the Simpsons and the Family Guy are going to be doing a crossover episode that'll air in the fall of 2014, where. Uh, Peter and the rest of the Griffins bark on a road trip and wind up in Springfield. There they cross paths with Homer, who graciously greets his new albino visitors, and two families become fast friends. Stewie is impressed with Bart and his assortment of pranks. Lisa tries to figure out exactly what it is that she's good at, and Marge and Lois do some bonding meanwhile. Peter and Homer argue over which beer is better, Pawtucket or Duff. And and I noticed that... uh, See, I'm even forgetting what her name is. Uh, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> I, I noticed Meg wasn't wasn't mentioned in that. Well, either was Maggie, but I guess if... Well, Lisa's supposed to mentor Meg on how to be a woman. Yeah. And... Um, Seems like Stewie should should talk to, to, <laughs> to Maggie at some point. And Stewie and um, Maggie both have a lot in common as they've both shot people countless times. So um, there's a lot of it, there's a lot of good opportunity here for some some crossover love. Brian could talk to Santa's little helper. Maybe um, we'll hear Santa's little helper talk. <laughs> That'd be yeah, I don't know where. I mean, Brian's the, the oddball out because there's nothing comparable um, to The Simpsons. I mean, Brian's a, a character. He's a dog, yes, but. Um, I'd see maybe Brian would be more in tune to Bart. Um, I mean, we'll see how it all comes out. I mean, this isn't the first time. Yeah. Um, Peter's been on Family Guy. Um, I'm sorry, Peter's been on The Simpsons when Homer had a... Oh, the clones? Exactly. And you, you see him just randomly there. 
And then you know, there was one episode. It's actually it was actually cut off the broadcast where um, they did tie it together. Uh, Quagmire went um, had an affair with went to Springfield had an affair with Marge um, and ended up killing the entire family. And it, it's on the Adult Swim. It's on the DVD version, but it was never made it to broadcast air. That that segment was cut out. So they've they've actually crossed over before. So um, I'm yeah. surprised I'm surprised they're doing it in this way instead of kind of going back to the the episode where Stewie like the road to the multiverse thing and having it somehow go that way instead of them actually being in the the same universe because it seems weird. I, I mean, I guess if you can accept that Brian can talk and stuff, you can accept them being in, in the same universe. But just because of like the difference in the the style of the characters and whatnot and we know that on the simpsons that not just springfield looks like that on their show you know like so i i don't know i mean maybe they'll explain that more on the episode and maybe we shouldn't just worry about it at all <laughs> well I, mean, I think though they're they're all they're both smart enough both yeah. the staffs are smart enough to mine the jokes where the discrepancies are not not gloss over wax over it but actually make a joke about it um, so I'm, again, I'm, I'm completely allowing them to, to tell their story. I think it's going to be funny. I mentioned earlier, um, the Simpsons has been kind of on a resurgence. This last season was really well done. Um, a lot of great episodes this last season. Um, a lot of people have turned off on both of these series you know, on the internet. People talk about the Simpsons are, well, they jumped the shark a long time ago and family guy hasn't been funny forever. Um, wrong on both counts. And, and I know it's subjective or objective. Um, but you're, I, I find joy in watching Family Guy every Sunday night and The Simpsons every Sunday night um, still to this day. There's episodes that aren't as funny as the others, but when a Simpsons episode is funny, it's close your eyes because you're crying, laughing, hard funny. Um, With the similarly titled block of animation called Animation Domination. Not right. Animation Fascination. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think my favorite episodes of Family Guy are still the ones that are like focused on Brian and Stewie. Like almost, I think... If they had done any spinoff to Family Guy, I wish it had been a Brian and Stewie spinoff, because I would have watched the the heck out of that show instead of a, a Cleveland show, which got canceled. So Cleveland will be coming back to, I'm assuming the the, the Family Guy universe again. But and the Cleveland show was very well done. It's just uh, you and you know I don't know not, we haven't talked about the news, but American Dad's moving to TBS. Um, so, I mean, I think there's just too much of the same on one block. Yeah. Like, uh, it's pretty much the Seth MacFarlane block with the Simpsons. Right. And uh, so, I mean, it's uh, – Cleveland coming back would be great. You know, he, he he worked better as the fourth in the group of guys. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if they'll bring that family from, from the show with them and maybe, like, have, like, a Cleveland series finale on Family Guy. <laughs> They can probably do what they did before, and everyone just get killed off, just instantly. Everyone get killed off, and he'll be sad for about five minutes and be over. Yeah, <laughs> more or less. That's how that's how the show works. But uh, yeah, so that that is our news this week, coming from from some of it's out, out of Comic Con this past going on right now. It's in the second day when we're recording this. So that is our our news for the week. We'll be back in a few seconds with our trailers.
we're back with our new trailers for the week. The first one being How to Train Your Dragon 2 teaser trailer. And I was really excited to see this. I'm going to have to talk to Matt about it again when he's on the show because I know he'll be excited. Uh, we were going to have Justin Vactor on the show to ask him because uh, he loved the first How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, he, had a, he had a leave. So he, he was here and he left before you guys even knew anything about even being here. Uh, but I really enjoyed the teaser. Like, like we've kind of said before, it's a teaser in the strongest sense of that, where it's just Hiccup and Toothless flying around the sky. They both appear to be older, and uh, Hiccup has this really awesome like armor that it looks like he created on, on himself. And then during the teaser, he jumps off of Toothless and actually has built himself this own his own wing like Clyde suit with a, like even like a a tail fin on his back where so he can steer himself and whatnot. So him and Toothless are just flying in the air together. And then the last shot of the teaser is Hiccup takes off his his helmet of his mask. So you get to see a little bit older Hiccup. So I'm really interested in checking this movie out next year when it comes out in theaters. What did you think about the the teaser? Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I, it looks gorgeous, um, for one, uh, just uh, flying over the water and through the clouds. Um, it just—it looks like I don't. It just—it looks different. It looks less cartoony, more action-based. Even the trailer does not a chuckle in it at all. It's—it's it's an action-packed, heart pulse pounding um, little snippet of a, of a scene. And I just, um, you know, Toothless look, look, looks older, looks more mature. Um, I think it's. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Definitely. And I, I like how they, they kind of share the, the fact they both have that kind of handicap going on with, like, the hiccup with his, his foot being amputated off by the end of the first film. Spoiler alert if you haven't watched the film that came out a few years ago. Uh, and Toothless is uh, one of his tail fins being gone. But the fact that they both work together like that and they can they kind of coexist. Uh, I kind of hope that they, they change... Since the title actually isn't in the trailer, it just says 2014... I'm hoping, I really hope that the final title for the movie isn't How to Train Your Dragon 2. Because I know with the TV series, it's called Dragons Riders of Burke, so I was hoping maybe that the sequel would be called Dragons, whatever other subtitle that they want to come up with, and not just, you know... Because, I mean, I think people can figure out that it's it's a sequel to How to Train Your Dragon if they just called it Dragons and have it used the same font and whatnot, you know? I mean, it, it's based on a series of books, though, so, yeah. I mean... Is every book called How to Train Your Dragon? No, because like the the next book was actually like about them learning to become become pirates, and I'm pretty sure that's not what they're doing with the sequel film. So, I mean, they can they can pretty much do what they want. Yeah, I mean, with all the different, I mean, there's so many different titles. Obviously, they won't do the pirate because it, or maybe they will. Who knows? You know, the Dragon Storm, Dragon's Heart. I mean, all those different names they can pull on instead of just putting a two in front of it or behind right. it. So hopefully they, they are a little creative. I like it better when they're creative than just you know, running the same old stuff over and over again, numbers. Yeah. Like, like I, I really liked the, the title that they were going to do for Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs sequel. When it was called Cloudy 2, Revenge of the Leftovers. I thought that was awesome. And now it's just Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs 2. I think people still could have figured out that it was a sequel to Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs if they called it Cloudy 2, Revenge of the Leftovers. But I don't know. I guess they have to do that for brand recognition. But I still think the cooler title would have been to, you know, do that. 
but that's that's enough about ranting about titles and because that can get me into a whole other thing like when they do uh prequels but then call it the third movie but i won't i won't get into that uh but planes uh the third trailer uh the spinoff two cars films not being not a pixar film that's here another reminder for you that it's not being produced by pixar uh disney toon studios it's another trailer for this film doesn't really make me want to see it any more or any less than the other trailers did i'm i'm hoping that it's a good movie just because that they had enough uh they believed in enough to push it into theaters then not just have it be the straight-to-DVD film that it was originally planned to be. And, like Matt and I have said, it was the reason why I'm assuming the sequel, The Planes 2 Fire and Rescue, is coming out less than a year after this hits theaters, in theaters, because I'm assuming they were producing things back-to-back so that they could come out straight-to-DVD on, sequ- on, on Blu-ray. DVD and Blu-ray each year, kind of like how they do with the, the Tinkerbell films. Um... I mean, the, the Tinkerbell films have surprised me in the past. I didn't think I would like those at all, and they've actually surprised me to the point where I can actually say that I like a few of them and not be too embarrassed about that, I guess. But, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm going to go see it because I know my son wants to see it, and just because I'm interested in seeing uh, what this first kind of thing coming from Disney where they take a, a Pixar property and make a spinoff off to it where they produce it and Pixar isn't really involved other than John Lasseter is producing, executive producing. So, so what, what do you think about Planes? Um, so I wasn't a big fan of Cars. I never saw Cars 2. Um, it's, it was one of the things in the Pixar theory that we've already discussed that uh, um, was a great stretch of the imagination. Seen the trailer? There's nothing there that says I have to see it and I need to see it, but it's not for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a 40 year old man. There's a difference. Um, my nephew probably salivating right now, even thinking about it. But for me, you know, I might pass this once. Plus, plus, it's you know not Pixar. Pixar always finds a way to make something good, even when you don't want to watch it. It's there. Cars was enjoyable, but. Uh, um, yeah, I think I'm probably going to pass on this one unless it just happens to be on. Those are our two new trailers for the week. We'll be back in a few seconds with our recommendations. And we're back with our recommendations for the week. I have two because one I'm doing is Matt's because he wants me to talk about it, but I really enjoyed this video as well. And I want you guys all to check it out and like it so that he can win the contest that he entered with this. Uh, he talked about some of his videos before where he was using his DJI Phantom uh, video quadcopter and said, or, or like he had done some stuff over fields and. So, so in this one, he he had planned this for a few weeks, and he finally went and he shot it over Niagara Falls. And now, at, at this point, I want to say he's got like over 400 subscribers now on YouTube. Uh, his video has now been on like Gizmodo and Huffington Post. Uh, 
told me CNN was contacting him about using the video. So he's getting uh, lawyers so he can license the video. and what. So, I mean, this thing is blowing up for Matt and nice. for good reason, just because it's, it's got 430,000 views so far on YouTube. And when you, when you see the footage, you're going to, you're going to be blown away from it because I mean, if you've seen, ever seen Niagara Falls, this is a completely kind of new angle to see it from. And it's, it's really cool what he was able to capture with his GoPro and the quadcopter. And if he wins the contest, he'll win his own quadcopter because the one that he, he was using, uh, was from his workplace. But, uh, this video, this video is amazing. We have the, the video link in, in the show notes. So definitely check it out and let, let Matt know on his YouTube page, how much you enjoyed the video and give it a like so he can win that contest. Very cool. Definitely. Uh, I don't know if you got a ch- chance to check it out yet, John. Did you at all? I saw the link on Facebook. But yeah, I mean, it's like all the sites that are carrying it out and then, like our, our site, the, the podcast website is actually getting some hits now because of it, because they're finding him through our site or he's getting credited as Matt Quest of Animation Fascination. So I'm, I'm glad that the, the podcast can kind of steal some of some Matt's thunder with, with his video that he shot. Because <laughs> it's nice to get some more sort of hits to the site. But from that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about another guy that flies. And we've talked about how it should have ended on our show before. I still really want to get Daniel Baxter, who does those shorts with his team, on the podcast and talk to him about just the process of those films and what originally got him to want to be doing those. But he, he they just did one for how Man of Steel should have ended. And if you've seen the, the film, it, it, just just as always, they pick the, like the best points in the film to like where you can pick it out. And you're like, sometimes it's funny, but this one actually like really makes you think that if they had done that, they really could have done something completely different with the entire movie. Uh, and did you get a chance to watch it, John? The video? No. I've seen the movie twice. Right. So they, they make uh, puns about, you know, things snapping and other. Right. But it, it's definitely worth checking out, because, especially if you're a fan of the movie. So I, I'm de- definitely suggesting everybody check that out. So How Man of Steel Should Have Ended. What are your recommendations for the week? All right, um, I've got kind of a theme going. Um, you know, I'm reading Stephen King's latest book, Joyland, um, through the Hard Case Crime book series. Um, Hard Case Crimes uh, books publishing has brought back pulp books, and they do a lot of pulp-type um, stories. Um, this is King's second um, excursion with them. This one has a summer feel. It's about a, a kid who goes to work at a carnival over the summer. Um, it's uh, I'm about halfway through it. It's... It's not. It's the 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 modern Stephen King, so it's more based on storytelling and less on schlock or scares. Um, but I mean, he's he's the master. He's probably the greatest American writer working right now. Um, and not just based on sales. I mean, the, the man can tell a story. But uh, it, it's a it, it's a real good book. Um, I like how it it kind of has that same feel as a couple of my favorite summer movies. Um, this year, the way way back, um, they almost go almost hand in hand in the kind of stories being told. Um, so, I mean, that's that's I highly recommend the book if you haven't read it or you're looking for something to read. You know, before summer ends, it's a great summer book because um, it just has that feel and it, it's a timepiece. It goes back into the uh, '60s and '70s. Um, again, something he does really well. 
Another thing I'm reading is the uh, DC Comics Justice League Trinity War. Um, second part just came out. Um, and then there's a, been a, a prequel. This is uh, DC explaining who Pandora is. Um, she's the one who kind of created the new DC universe at the end of Flashpoint. Um, a lot of... Which will be... Which uh, DC Universe is releasing as an animated movie later this month, too. Right. Um, there's a lot of revelations happening. Um, a lot of... Uh, I, I know where this is going just by the first part, so you kind of get an idea, especially you know what the solicitations for later in the fall are, are, are happening with DC. But so far, it's really good, really really strong, um, great art, um, you know, great storytelling, Jeff Johns, um, Ivan Race. Um, I mean, they're just... They're knocking it out of the park so far. With the the Justice League part, um, the JLA part is the one that just came out. I haven't got to that one yet, but uh, yeah, it's 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 an all encompassing DC um, crossover event, and uh, it's been a while since they've done one. Yeah. Um, death in the fam, death of the family, um, notwithstanding, but um, highly recommended if you like comic books, like DC, um, um, like capes. <laughs> Do you think that that's kind of uh, DC's answer to like what Marvel did? last year with the uh, Marvel Civil War almost Civil War was a long time ago um I'm not Civil War uh the uh, X- Avengers versus X-Men um not really because it's it's so short it's it's only it's it's ended up being six parts told over 3 months it's, uh, you know all of Marvel's are all encompassing um hundreds of tie-in issues this is just the JLA titles Justice League Justice League America Justice League Dark um, and then there's three ancillary outside the story tie-ins: Pandora, Phantom Stranger. Pandora has two. Phantom Stranger um, number eleven is part of it. Um, but it's a it's a it's a concise story, and there will be ramifications throughout the entire DCU. Um, a lot of people, when they first announced this, thought that this might be the open door to reset DC back to the way it was. Um, I don't think that's where they're going with it. And I'm on that fence, so I'm not too sold on the new 52 yet. But then again, um, I want it to succeed, but I think they did it wrong. That's a whole other podcast for another day. But um, it, I strongly recommend this. Um, the first issue had a, a you know a shocking, jaw-dropping moment, um, which actually ties into the end of Man of Steel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it, it's got off to a great start. I think they're... Hopefully they can finish it. Jeff Johns is is able to finish his stories, um, unlike a lot of Marvel writers can't do that. Um, so yeah, I strongly strongly suggest picking it up if you like any comics, whatever. Yeah. And uh, lastly, I'm, I've kind of turned the summer of 2013 into what I'm calling the summer of Final Fantasy. Um, I'm now playing four Final Fantasy games all at the same time. Not Final Fantasy four, but uh, I just finished 13. Um, doing this around, I got into the beta for Final Fantasy 14, A Realm Reborn, which uh, comes out on August 27th, which is Square's rebooting of, Square Enix's rebooting of their own Final Fantasy 14 that came out two years ago, which was a commercial and critical flop in every sense of the word. It was terrible. Um, they went back to the drawing board, kept the, the numbering, um, and then redid it from scratch. And being in the beta, I can tell you this game is fantastic. It's a good MMO, it's a good fantasy game, and it's a great Final Fantasy game. And uh, so to be able to do all of that in one title um, is a is a big deal. So I'm, you know, I've got 
I'm playing three on the DS. I just finished 13 on the PS3. Um, I'm playing 12 on the PS2. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see how many I can play during the quote unquote summer. So yeah, this is my summer of Final Fantasy getting ready to, uh, leading up to the August 27th release of Final Fantasy 14, A Realm Reborn. So, uh, yeah, that's, I highly recommend, uh, dabbling in these old games and getting ready for that. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be awesome when it comes out. Definitely. Um, like I told you, uh, off, off mic was that like the last Final Fantasy game I played was 10 and I, I never beat it just because I got stuck on one part. But well, I mean, Square Enix is bringing out the HD um, Final Fantasy X and X2 for the PS3 and the Vita. Uh, the PS3 version has both X and X2 on the same disc. The Vita selling them separately, um, which is a crock, but that's a whole other story as well. Um, but yeah, even X's coming back in an HD version, and I, I very, I plan to play it again. As I told you off mic, it's uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Final Fantasy game of all time. So. Looking forward to it. I may have to revisit it when they when they release that PS3 version. See if I can finally beat that section of the game. Well worth it. Yeah. All right, guys. So that those are our recommendations for the week. We'll be back in a few seconds talking to Hal Hickle about Pacific Rim. Here in the main topic today, we're going to be interviewing Hal Hickel from Industrial Light and Magic and talking about Pacific Rim. Nice to have you on the show again, Hal. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, and then I guess if, if people hadn't listened to the, the last episode we had you on, uh, I guess introduce yourself and explain what you do at Industrial Light and Magic. Sure. Uh, I'm an animation supervisor at ILM. I've been here for about 17 years. And Last time I was on, we talked about Rango, I think, um, and this time we're going to be talking about Pacific Rim, which just opened this weekend. Very cool. I went to go see it this weekend. John, I know that you did too, and I really enjoyed it. How about you, John? I, I thought it was great. Um, some of the best animation scenes I've seen, the, the fight scenes were incredible. Um, in my review, I couldn't stop talking about them. It was, just, it was everything I wanted as a fanboy. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, so I guess to start off, what was your role uh, on Pacific Rim this time? Um, so I was the animation supervisor, so that means that I'm kind of in charge of the performances of the, the Jaegers and the, and the Kaijus. Um, I've got a hand in guiding the um, creation of the models at, here at ILM. A lot of the design work was done by Guillermo's uh, art team, although we had a an art director um, here at ILM, Alex Yeager, or the aptly named A. A. Yeager, um, who handled a lot of design work on our end as well. And then um, uh, Paul Jacopo and and Dave Fogler were in charge of modeling Kaijus and and then the Yeagers, respectively. And so I would, you know, have input to their work um, where I thought it affected animation. And then once the assets, the, the creatures and the robots were built and rigged, then um, I had a team of about, I don't know, I think 45 animators all together. Um, and we, you know, 
animate the shots and show them to Guillermo and get his feedback and and uh, until they were until they liked it until he would call it done. <laughs> Very cool. How long did you work on the production for the film? I think it, it was around eighteen months. I mean, it was just about exactly two years ago about this time of the year that we had our first meetings with Guillermo. But then we, we did a test and, you know, this, it took a while before all the bidding was done and the show was awarded. And so it was sort of getting in on into November or something by the time we were really working on it. And once we were working on it, then, you know, it was about 18 months. Awesome. So how, how kind of closely did you work with Guillermo during the, the production of the movie? Very, very close. He's, um, you know, he comes from a, of a from a special effects background. He was he had his own special effects company in Mexico at one time, and he's done practical effects and stop motion and a bunch of different things. And so he's very um, animation literate. He he loves animation of all kinds. And so he's as as an animation supervisor, he's a lot of fun to work for because he you just have great conversations with him. You know, he understands what we do. He speaks our language and. He's very knowledgeable about the history of, of animation and the technique of animation. And, um, so that just makes it a pleasure. And then he likes to be involved with it all. So he doesn't, he doesn't um, you know, just sort of check in with you once a week or something. I mean, we, right. we, of course, he's in L.A. He's either in Toronto when they were filming or, or he's back in L.A. once filming was done. So we do a lot of our reviews over kind of, you know, video conferencing. Um, but then he would come up here oh, at least once every two weeks, sometimes more often, and spend a few days here just, you know, going over all the work with us and going by artists' workstations and talking to them directly about their work. And and so he's just great that way. He's, a, he's um, you know, you have some directors who are have a really crystal clear vision of, of what they want, but that may make them a little less collaborative. You know, your job is a little bit more about kind of just executing their vision. And that's fine. That's those projects can be very cool in their own way. And then you, you have other directors who maybe don't have quite as clear a, a picture in their mind of where they're headed. They have lots of, they bring lots of other things to the table, but visually they're, they just don't have a clear vision and they kind of rely on you to collaborate with them and, and find that end result. And that also can be rewarding and cool. But Guillermo is in this sort of sweet spot between those two where he, he's very visual. He's got a very clear vision. You always feel like there's a strong hand on the tiller. But he's um, highly collaborative. He expects us to come up with new ideas and plus things out and not just execute what we've been handed. You know, like, well, here's the storyboard to do exactly this. He's, he wants us to come back and say, well, we thought of three new shots that are really cool and, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and by the end of the project, everybody just really loved him. We hadn't, we hadn't wor not worked with him before. ILM had not done a project with him before. And so we just... By the end of it, we were just uh, totally in love with the guy. We'd do anything for him. <laughs> That's true. I, I've noticed like how much he's been getting into animation like recently, like where he had uh, executive produced uh, the DreamWorks movies Puss in Boots, and then more recently Rise of the Guardians. And then he was working on that that stop motion Pinocchio film, which yep. I think uh, currently is kind of like on the shelf. But it, yeah. it's cool to see his visual style coming into the world of animation and. Yeah, and I hope he gets more opportunities. And I'm, I was bummed that Legend of the Guardian or Rise of the Guardians didn't um, uh, do better because I thought it was a beautiful looking film, and I thought they just had, 
Um, you know, in some ways, some of the problems that I think marketing faced with Pacific Rim, which is that it's it's a unique um, uh, IP. You know, it's not doesn't it's not didn't come from a famous book or book series or comic book or anything. And uh, it's just I'm, I'm sorry that more people didn't go out and see uh, Guardians because I thought it was really beautiful. I totally agree with that. Obviously, the movie's out now. A lot of us got a chance to see it. Um, all of us have our favorite scenes. I have my favorite scene is the what I call the Voltron moment um, when the sword appears first <laughs> yeah. time. Um, what was your favorite scene to work on in the film? You know, it's hard to say because um, you know a lot of movies that we work on there, there will be, you know, a really, you know, there's like the scene that's just super awesome or a couple scenes that are, and, and within that, those scenes, there'll be like the handful of just amazing hero shots. And then a lot of other shots that are just there to kind of get you to those hero moments. But I got to tell you, we kept joking that on this movie, it felt like every shot was a hero shot. Like every, <laughs> every, it, both in terms of difficulty, but then also just in terms of, Impact, and I know that's not the case. You 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 can't have a movie that's all <laughs> that's all at eleven all the time. But um, but it does make it hard for me. I mean, I really like um, I like that moment where Leatherback jumps out of the ocean onto Cherno. I like um, I like Leatherback in general. There's a lot of moments with with him that I like. Um, I like a lot of the stuff with Itachi in Hong Kong because we finally get him out of the water and into the city, which is fun. Um, but yeah, it's 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 funny. There's lots of little bits of it that I like. I like the introduction of Knifehead a lot with the fishing boat because that to me is total kaiju movie territory. You know, but if it had, awesome. the only thing it would have made it more like a like a, a classic movie is if it had been a giant octopus or a giant lobster that would have crushed the boat. But uh, you know, it, it was uh, totally cla- straight out of one of those movies. So I like that a lot. Um, yeah, and I I like uh, Cherno a lot. Cherno Alpha, just that like that weird clunky design, and yeah. uh, uh, it just uh, it tickled me. I think he's really cool. That was actually my favorite design as well. <laughs> uh, coming from that, what what was more fun to create the the uh, the Yagers or the Kaiju? Oh, you know they're both fun. I think the Yagers were a little harder for us because. You know, everything Everything had the same issues with scale. So scale was a problem, whether it was the Jaegers or the Kaijus. And so that dif- amount of difficulty with that was the same. But with the Kaiju, you know, we've done a lot of creature work here. And, and it's fun for us. And it's not easy, particularly with Guillermo, because, for instance, he never, he never allowed us to just sort of fake it by doing, having the monster just sort of stand there and look monstery. He always wanted them... And it's tough in a fight scene because, you know, when one, you know, if a Jaeger is sort of recovering and then coming back to throw a blow, what's the kaiju doing for all that time? And, and that's a problem even in live action fight scenes where you have stunt people who look like they're just standing there waiting to take the next punch. And Guillermo would never let us get away with that with the kaijus. We always, they always had to look like they were planning their next move or on their way to doing something or, they, or recovering or something. But we had to understand what they were doing. Um, all the time, and they had to, you know, had to look like they were thinking and so forth. So, but that's that's kind of normal animation challenges, you know. Um, whereas the Jaegers had most of those problems, but we also had to figure out how to make them feel um, huge but mechanical, which turned out to be surprisingly tricky because 
I went into it thinking a lot about, you know, all this mass, for instance, just when they're, when they're walking, when Gypsy's walking, and I would think, well, it can't be this lurchy, robotic, start, stop, start, stop, because that doesn't make sense. You, this thing's 25 stories tall. Once it gets up to speed, you're going to want to keep that as co constant as possible until it has to stop again. So, but Guillermo didn't really didn't want it to be super fluid and humanistic. Um, so we never we didn't even consider using mocap. We knew that wasn't the right way to go for this project. Um, so it was figuring out where to put in the little mechanical recoils and hard hits and and things to make it feel like a big machine, but still make it feel efficient and capable of battling the kaiju's and all that. So, anyways, fi figuring out all those little things were, I think, more of a challenge in some ways than. Um, than, than animating the kaiju. Also, the design of the Jaegers. Machines are always a lot harder to do than than fleshy creatures because the flesh can, particularly around something like a shoulder, which has a lot of degrees of freedom, um, with a fleshy creature, the flesh can stretch and twist like flesh does. But with a machine, you've got all these hard parts that have to sort of function and move around each other the way they really need to so they don't just pass through each other and collide with each other. And that's hard because you you don't have an engineer in there designing all the parts from the inside out making sure they all work it's more like you know this thing has been designed from the outside to look really cool and now you've got to figure out <laughs> how, to, how to make it move we had the same problem with the iron man suit in the first iron man figuring okay. out how to make i mean we had the advantage there that the legacy guys had built a really beautiful practical suit on set that solved many of the problems but there there were still lots of things to work out to to, to make it work. And then the same thing with Gypsy and Stryker and, and Crimson and Cherno. There was tons of weird little mechanical things to just, oh, boy, the wrist, you know, the, that design looks cool, but the hand can't move, you know. So, you know, get in there and adjust things and slide plates around and figure out how the piston should work and all that. And so so that was that was very challenging as well. Awesome. Is there... Um... <laughs> Is there supposed to be like a correlation between the look of the kaiju and the otherworldly creatures that are um, kind of pulling their strings? I mean, they they all shared kind of the same look, in my opinion. And was I just seeing things, or is that intentional? Um, you know, I mean, Guillermo had a bit a really great team of designers, and they and I think they designed a lot of different things, and it got distilled down to what it is. But like, for instance, the 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 masters, the aliens that you see, you briefly glimpse at the end, they're, they came largely from a Wayne Barlow design um, that then kind of mutated and changed a little bit. And in fact, the design that they originally came from was, was going to be a, a big, like a kaiju-sized creature. And then they, instead that design kind of got repurposed and made into these, um, at least that's how I understand it from the artwork that I saw. But um, And then they became sort of the, the aliens. And... Um, and so they, they do share some design language with the kaijus, but it's not super direct. I mean, some of the kaijus are really, like Onibaba is the big crab you see in the Tokyo flashback, and, you know, it really doesn't look like any of the other kaijus. And then, so they're, they're pretty kind of all over the map, and, uh, but there is, there is a kinship there, because they did come from the same sort of batch of designs. The one thing, I don't know how clear it is in the, in the way the film is now, um, one thing that I th thought was neat, though, was at the end when um, Gypsy get, gets into, and I'm going to assume this is going to air. Okay, spoiler alert for anyone. Um, when Gypsy gets to the antiverse, what we call the antiverse, where the the um, you know the kaiju's are being created, 
Um, there was this kind of a cool moment where now Gypsy is the giant um, in front of the little, you know, aliens or, 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 you know, masters or whatever we're calling them. And it's a little, the way that the scene's laid out now and, you know, some shots went away and other shots changed. Um, to me, it's not quite as clear as it was when I first saw, like, the storyboards for that. But I think it's a cool, like, reversal of, of things at the end where they, it floats down in front of their little floating rock and they're standing in front of them and now they're tiny and, and Gypsy's the giant in front of them. And I thought that was kind of a cool reversal of roles. It works. It works in the film too. Especially okay. when they do the close-up of the, the master's face and the eyes get real big. It's, yeah. yeah. It was a, a chuckle moment. <laughs> and he, yeah, yeah. And he wanted them to look... He didn't want them to be super expressive. I mean, obviously that shot had to work. Like you had to tell that it was kind of a WTF <laughs> moment for the <laughs> the alien, but um, but he didn't want him to be really expressive. He wanted them in a, in a way to be a little bit kind of scarily blank, like you know what I mean. Like you'd look at him and just they, they're almost you could almost not comprehend what their their whole existence. You know what I mean? Like right. he didn't want a really a face that you could just read as oh he's afraid or oh he's this he's that. He he really wanted something that was just, you know kind of genuinely alien and a little hard to read. So. Awesome. What do you think was the most challenging scene to work on in the film? I think the, uh, I mean, I think most of the, the kaiju Jaeger battles had a lot of the same kind of problems. I think that um, the, the stuff underwater at the end was very challenging because, you know, as it was going into it, um, you know, we had this issue where everything wanted everything to feel huge, right? And so the first thing you do to make things feel huge is you slow them down. But it's all these are all action sequences, and we couldn't have all these fights and, and battles transpiring in something that looked like slow motion. So, you know, we were always fighting that in all the sequences, but, you know, by moving things as fast as we kind of thought we could get away with, by having clever camera angles and, and using editorial tricks and deciding when to play an action on the, the live actors inside and when to cut outside, all that stuff to have things feel like it was really hustling along and not all transpiring in slow motion. But then we get to the end of the movie and they're underwater. And, you know, that just compounds things because you, you need to suggest that they're underwater. So so that I found that tricky. I don't know if that was the hardest stuff to do, but it was it was a new set of challenges suddenly kind of, you know, after we'd kind of gotten a handle on on the other stuff, then we had this whole new set of challenges to, to deal with. But in terms of, you know, overall in the film, I think any pretty much any of the fighting stuff was just hard to do. Period. And and you know maybe the Hong Kong stuff, the dealing with destruction, got a little more tricky because that that required a lot more kind of uh, forethought and and working together with our, the group that's creating the environments and the group that's going to be doing the destruction and really making sure we're all working together. Whereas when they were out in the ocean, we had to be mindful of how fast we were moving the parts of the, of the uh, kaijus and the Yeagers that were passing through the water. But it was a little more forgiving, I think, there than, than once we got into the city where we really had to, for one thing, we couldn't just willy-nilly crash into buildings because, you know, we might find out, oh, well, we didn't budget for that building to be destroyed and, yeah. and it hasn't been modeled in a way that makes it destroyed. So we always had to make sure we were all communicating and say, all right, what's the plan here? Which building are we going to bump into? How much of it's going to break? You know, all that kind of stuff. So that, that just that makes things a little, you know, more complicated, I think. Definitely. Uh, and would, would you like to think that Industrial Light and Magic uh, wasn't destroyed by the, the kaiju that 
attacked San Francisco at the beginning of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because there's a there's a map painting. We've got it around ILM here in San Francisco. There's a bunch of you know artifacts from past films, and one of the things we have a lot of is is old old school map paintings and hanging on different walls. And there's one in a conference room that is from one of the Star Trek films from the '80s. I want to say it's from the uh, Voyage Home, Journey Home, whatever number, the fourth one, the one with the right. whales. I think it's from that one. If it's not that one, it's one from right around that era. But anyways, it's a view from Marin looking back towards San Francisco with the Golden Gate Bridge in the foreground. And right where ILM is now in the Presidio is where Starfleet Academy is. Like oh, so, nice. at some point in the past, and they decided that that San Francisco is where Starfleet. I think that's part of that goes back to the original series, but. That's just part of Star Trek lore. But they chose to put it right where the Presidio is. And it's really funny because then, you know, yeah, 15 years, 20 years later, we actually ended up being there. So, yeah, I'd like to think that the, somehow or other it waded ashore and, and missed <laughs> missed us. We were, we were left intact. <laughs> but, you know, San Francisco is always getting destroyed. I mean, into darkness. You know, the, yeah. the big black enterprise plows into San Francisco. Even in, I mean, I guess in Star Trek it makes sense because... Starfleet. They put Starfleet here. We're going to get targeted. But there's, you know, so many other big event sci-fi movies. They're kind of constantly destroying San Francisco. Yeah, I remember like X three, the the Golden Gate Bridge, and that too. And yeah, exactly, so. exactly. Even in the first, uh, the Ang Lee Hulk, we I mean, they did destroy oh, yeah. San Francisco, but you know they ended up here with some action, and he's out on the Golden Gate Bridge and in the streets and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, isn't San Francisco lousy with apes now, too? That's right. That's right. We had Planet of the Apes, yeah. You can't swing a dead cat here without hitting an ape. <laughs> That's a real problem. <laughs> I'd like to see a tally sometime of, like, how many times New York's been destroyed, how many times San Francisco, Paris, you know, how, how many times have you hit the Taj Mahal, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think I think there's like one of those those infographics that people do uh, pr online somewhere probably that shows like the total destruction of each of be. these cities. And I have to think New York probably tops the list. Yeah. But, but uh, I think at this point we've all learned that we need to live in in the Great Plains of the the U.S. during uh, movies with uh, disaster going. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. So. Well, there is one thing. <laughs> there's one thing at Pacific Rim that always makes me chuckle because they talk about how. Later in the movie, Newt talks about how, you know, they sent in the kaijus early on to take out the population centers. Yeah. But in the prologue at the beginning of the movie, when they're talking about the early attacks, one of them is Baja. And I'm like, yeah. you know, <laughs> what poor kaiju got sent to Baja? Like, there's, you know, <laughs> like, they're, they're there to destroy cities. And it's like, you know, they're, they're, they're destroying Sammy Hagar's, you know, <laughs> club in, in Cabo Wabo or something. So that, that always tickled me. But... This uh, this next question is actually posed by Matt Quest, who obviously can't be here, and I'm in his shoes. Um, what is the significance of Mako's red shoe? Was there a significance? Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think you know, beyond just it's odd, you know, the the storytelling of that she, the little, you know, she loses her shoe and it becomes this like important thing to her. The red. I would actually like to ask Guillermo that question because. He was very particular about red in this film. Like you notice, it's a very colorful film. Like oh, yeah. he, he he and that was something he talked to us about from the very beginning. 
he wanted really saturated colors and this really you know vibrant look and um but we had a couple of different scenes where there were just little random bits of red in the scene and not you'd expect it in the flashback scene because you know that's the scene that features the shoe and you 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 could imagine him wanting to take all the red out except for the shoe which he did um, but there were other scenes in the movie where he said, you know, oh, there's some red safety lights there on the landing pad. Can you make those amber instead and stuff? So I actually, I didn't, it's something I was always in the back of my mind to quiz him about, and I haven't had a chance to do it, but I would like to know, and other filmmakers have done that, chosen a color or other, so oftentimes red, to sort of make a special color in the film and to only use it um, for certain purposes. But I'd love to know what his purpose was with that, with the shoe, because... Um, because I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to the question. But I think there, he did have some something special in, in his mind, at least, about it. So, Definitely. yeah. And it may have been just as simple as it, wanting the shoe to have more visual impact by making sure that there wasn't a lot of other red in the movie. But um, beyond that, I don't know. So, and, and, yeah, and then we would see Ron Perlman's nice, awesome uh, gold shoes, too. <laughs> yeah. So... so. So some pretty cool shoes. Uh, so I, I guess the next question would be, who would you want to co-pilot a Jaeger with? <laughs> well, it'd have to be my brother, Shell. He's two years older than me, and he's a big part of the reason that I do what I do for a living. He was, he's always been kind of the fine artist, and um, so when we were kids and he was drawing, then I would draw and so forth. So, um, and he he's a he's a great guy. He's you know. And I, we're our only siblings. We don't have any other siblings, and you know we're as close as brothers can be. So yeah, it would have to be him. Very cool. I, uh, I know you just finished this, you know, project. Obviously, work on something else. But um, would you like to see Guillermo write a sequel? And and what would you, as you know, the artist and the art team, what would you like to see happen in it? You know, I, um, I, I mean, I would love for. I think Travis Beecham, who wrote the screenplay, definitely has ideas for a sequel that he and Guillermo have talked about. And I would love for them to get the chance to expand the world and do it. Um, I'm, I don't know um, for sure what is what you know ideas they have for it. Um, I personally would love, and you know he had he did Travis wrote that um, graphic novel um, Year Zero, or, or I think that's what it's called. Um, it's a kind of a Pacific Rim prequel. Um, graphic novel that came out <clears throat> but i'd love to see i would love to see a movie where you get to see you know crimson and cherno and and striker like in their prime <laughs> you know having been, I, I realized dramatically that's not as meaty as like the, the cool thing about pacific rim is that you're kind of coming into the story right in their direst hour you know right at sort of the end of this whole thing which is great but I'd, I'd love to see have gotten a chance to see more of uh, you know Crimson and, and Cherno and Stryker and, and Gypsy as well you know out there doing their doing their thing and a bunch of other you know give you a chance to do a bunch of other uh, you know Stacker mentions that there used to be like thirty six Jaegers in the oh, or something in the Shatterdome you know it'd be cool to see that at the height of its yes of its activity definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I guess you kind of see some of that, like with like when he's kind of g giving you like the backstory of the film as it's coming on, and you see like right. some of like the newscasts and whatnot. But yeah, it definitely would be cool to see maybe like some flashbacks to that, like in a sequel in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Speaking of sci-fi and whatnot, how how are you guys ramping up for episode seven and all of <laughs> what's going on with those it, that whole universe? It, yeah, it's happening. Um, I haven't been involved with any of it yet. Not, most mostly, ILM is not super involved yet, um, and they're, you know, I think JJ was busy, you know, getting his getting into darkness out into theaters, and but now, I, as far as I know, he's full steam ahead on it and beyond that i i don't really know i'd love to be able to give you something juicy about it but i'm I, there's just nothing <laughs> i can tell you yet um we're all excited about it can't wait to see what they come up with <laughs> yeah i definitely know you in particular are probably super excited about all the star wars that's coming in down the pipeline and whatnot <laughs> absolutely yeah no i'm a huge star wars fan and and i'm a big jj fan i got to work with him a little bit on super eight and um, that was a great experience, and I like Super 8 a lot, and I really like both of his Star Trek films, so I'm, I'm really jazzed to see what they come up with for Star Wars. So it's exciting, exciting times. And, you know, having Kathy Kennedy now in, in charge of Lucasfilm is, is awesome, and she's really great. And so just the idea of her kind of being at the helm of all that stuff is, is really reassuring and, and, uh, and great. Very cool. This is a kind of almost like a follow up, but um, we don't want to dabble too much on Star Wars here. But uh, <laughs> this is a question I have: Can you guys, can ILM turn around a full length Star Wars film in the time that Disney's given you? Uh yes, um, <laughs> we we can. Um, I, I I haven't looked at the calendar lately. For I know they, you know, it was all in the press that there was going to be a, the first film in 2015, but. Um, I mean, we'll just have to see how it goes. I don't think, I, 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 you know, they've put a stake in the sand, but, you know, that's all above my pay grade. I, I assume that if uh, they need to, they'll they'll move the release date back or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't think they'll rush it. It's too important. But, but yeah, we could, you know, we've done big, big projects. Like the Pirates films, the, the three that I worked on had very compressed um, post schedules. So... And we got it all done. So somehow, <laughs> I mean, pirates is pirates, and it's a great movie. Don't be wrong, but I mean, Star Wars. You're you're world building with Star Wars, and that's yeah, uh, yeah. No, no, I, I believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it, but you know, we'll yeah, we'll it'll it'll get figured out <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I, just, I just since they made the announcement, that question's been on my mind. How can ILM turn this thing around in that small time frame? It took you three years to do Episode One. And you know you have, to, you have to build obviously new assets and all that. It's just it, it's in my head. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. I hear you. I think it's in our head too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess kind of coming off that, what, what is next for you and your team? Would it be Transformers Four, or is a, another feature that you'd be working on? Um, ILM is currently working on Noah for Darren Aronofsky, and um, Transformers Four is ramping up. Uh, we're doing. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I, th I think that's all I can talk about. And obviously, Star Wars is on the horizon. Um, I personally am not working on any of those. I'm bidding projects and helping out with various chores and stuff um, until whatever my next thing is gets rolling. So I've had kind of a nice, easy summer. I went to Annecy to the animation festival there and gave a talk and took did a little vacationing with my family and so forth. So and get now we're getting ready for SIGGRAPH. So um so for me it's been a kind of an easy summer and I don't I don't have a big next thing yet that I'm digging into. So which is kinda nice. I kinda need the break. <laughs> but um uh you know 
uh, you can't last too long. And but uh, those other projects are, are kind of what's keeping the rest of folks here busy at the moment, and, as well as a few other things that are that I can't talk about. Right. Very cool. With the uh, yeah, um, another kind of a business question. With the uh, recent you know well publicized troubles with Rhythm and Hughes and the other big FX houses, um, you know, the, sh- the industry shifting as a whole. And you know, more of these basement startups are underbidding on these big projects. Um, is, is ILM equipped to survive in this new era? Um, I think better than we've we ever have been. Um, you're absolutely right. It's very challenging right now, and we swim in the same waters as everyone else. We're not immune to it by any means. And we, as a California company, we struggle with um, uh, you know a lot of things that have been. Uh, that have shifted in the industry in the last couple of decades, and you know, one of which is is the tax credit thing. For instance, it's been very hard for us to battle. It's caused a lot of work to leave California and go elsewhere. Um, but we have, you know, we've become more global over the years. We have a studio now in Vancouver. We have a studio in Singapore that we've had actually quite a while, quite a long time now. The, the Vancouver studio is relatively new, but the studio in Singapore has been is quite established. Um, and we partner with some other company. You know, the Singapore and Vancouver studios are ours, but then we also partner with some third-party companies as well to help us keep costs down. Um, but really, we're really committed to keeping our full crew here working hard here in San Francisco, you know, doing the work as much of the work in California as makes sense and we can do. And, um, and to that end, uh, particularly, I think there's been a focus in the last two years to really examine every part of how we do our work and figure out how to be more efficient, how to make the artists uh, more efficient so that they're spending more time making pictures and less time debugging or, um, you know, doing sort of technical chores that don't really contribute to the quality of the image. But um, so in other words, improving our tool set, improving our pipeline, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's not as fun to talk about that stuff as it is to talk about, you know, blowing stuff up or, or animating giant robots, but it's really super important to our to our business and to our clients. And you know, Packroom is a, you know, in this day and age, it's become less and less common for a really big effect show like that to all be awarded to one studio to supervise. And and one of the reasons we were able to to have that happen with Pacific Rim is because we were able to be really aggressive, you know, with our bidding and and really super competitive and. That's a result of a lot of the improvements that have happened over the the uh, last couple of years. And you know, Kathy Kennedy has actually been really great in, in terms of uh, pushing us in that direction and and helping us to do that stuff. She's been, you know, from the top down, she's been um, really great in that regard. In fact, one of the things she said when she first came on is that a creative company like ours needs to have at the very top, it needs to have creative leadership alongside. The business leadership and Lynn Brennan is our our company president and she's been awesome but Kathy you know was saying you know you need a, a chief creative officer alongside of of Lynn to um, run the company and so that's that was a recent appointment of uh, John Knoll being made chief creative officer and so that you know is another great step in the right direction for our company and right. um, so yeah I mean I feel very optimistic in spite of you know, some very scary events in the last couple of years with DD and RH and, and other companies. There's been a whole spate of closings actually just over this last year. 
um, or, or morphings, you know, of studios from, you know, one business entity to another, but, and then some outright closures. So, but we're, we're hanging in there. We, um, I feel very optimistic about, about things. <laughs> Definitely. Or we have you guys back too. We have that, we have the green in our avatar still on, on Twitter to, you know, support the visual effects industry and whatnot. And cause I mean, without you guys, like, half these movies wouldn't be as awesome as they are because it would just just be a bunch of blank screen or a bunch of blue screens. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's great to be able to contribute such important, you know, elements to the movies that we love. And, you know, you you want to be able to make a living at it as well. (laughs) Yeah. So from that, which, which is more fun to build and play with as an artist, a Transformer or a Jaeger? You know, I didn't work on the Transformers. I like the Jaegers because they speak to, I, I mean, I didn't grow up on Transformers. By the time Transformers were coming out, I was a little too old for them, so I didn't hook right into them. Like if I had been a, a child of the 80s, I would probably adore them and w- would want to have worked on those movies. But I was a little bit more a child of the 70s. And because of that, I, they were things like Johnny Sacco, you know, Giant Robo, or... Um, Tetsujin 28 in America was Gigantor. Those made a big impact on me when I was a little kid. So a really massive robot uh, that doesn't really transform, but maybe it flies or it's controlled by a little kid with a wristwatch or something. That that to me is more speaks to my childhood than than a, than a transformer. So for me, this was more fun. But you know, we had guys, we have guys, animators here who are massive Transformers fans and couldn't have been happier to get their hands on Optimus Prime and Bumblebee and, you know, to work on those films. So everybody's a little different. But for me, this was much more my my speed. And I, I collect tin robots. I, I love robots. I've got a big blue Tetsujin sitting like five feet from me in my office, as well as a, a Godzilla, a Billiken vinyl Godzilla from the ni- early 90s that, you know, is one of my most prized possessions. So this movie was right in the sweet spot for me. Awesome. And I would suggest anybody that hasn't seen it to check out the the Industrial Light and Magic Creating Impossible documentary that was uh, done by Leslie Erickson. She did the the Pixar story as well. So yeah, and she just had a uh, released a documentary this year called uh, Oh, it's about it's about um, I think it's called Citizen Hearst. It's about uh, Citizen Kane and. and, oh, man. and Charles Randolph, or, or, you know, Charles, what's his name? Charles, no. I'm mixing up Charles Foster Kane and William Randolph Hearst. It's about William Randolph Hearst. Um, it's about him. And uh, it was, it's terrific. Yeah, she's great. Uh, definitely check out the ILM documentary. And also, we're going to have some, you know, we have a YouTube channel, and we're definitely going to be putting out some stuff related to Pacific Rim. Um, I don't have an ETA for that, but I know we're, um, it's getting put together. So there'll definitely be some stuff on there about Pacific Rim. Very cool. I had seen some of the, the Avengers ones that that were put on there a while ago, and I, I thought it was cool seeing how some of the scenes were done for that film, too. So, Yeah, yeah. And, you know, right now I think we're busy getting ready for SIGGRAPH, and then, uh, which for anybody who doesn't know is a big computer graphics um, convention that's held every year, and um, we always uh, present stuff, either work from films we've worked on or papers for technology that we've come up with and that sort of thing. And we go there to hear everybody else's new, great, bright ideas. And um, But anyway, so we're getting ready for that in just a couple of weeks. So, Cool. Uh, 
sort of wrap up is is there anything that you'd like to recommend our listeners to check out that you've been reading or watching recently i've been on a so my son is 12 and so i've I've kind of decided it's time for him he's he's been exposed to a lot of different kinds of movies and things um but i realized that i hadn't been showing him as much old stuff as i think he ought to see and he's very open you know he's not he's not a kid who's gonna say you know ooh, it's black and white i don't want that's boring i don't want to so he's pretty open to it so i've started to um just kind of randomly pick older movies that i that i really dig and that i think are appropriate and that he'll actually enjoy and like we we just watched um uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove, which nice. I, that one I was a little thought, I thought, you know, uh, might not dig it, you know, he might, but he totally loved it. He thought it was gr- very funny and hilarious. And then last night we watched Harold and Maude, which, um, this, you know, Hal Ashby is fantastic. And I would recommend people to go out and see any of his films, but especially Harold and Maude. So we watched that. And, um, what's up next? Um, we have to get into some Hitchcock, but we have to, you know, like probably something like the birds first, you know, he's 12. So we're not going to start off with psycho, but you know, the birds will be a good call. Um, so anyways, I've been kind of on a, on a kick of watching some older films. I want to get him in front of Lawrence of Arabia, but that one, you got to be, everybody has to be well rested in the right mindset. And in fact, I'd rather take him to a theater. Um, maybe the next time it comes through the Castro or something here in the city, one of the, one of the rep houses that'll, that'll play it. I'd like for him to see a nice print of it on a big screen because that's a much better way to see it. Definitely. After he watches all, all the Hitchcock movies, should show him the, the Mel Brooks film High Anxiety. Yeah, well, he's, okay, so he's seen, uh, he's seen uh, Blazing Saddles now and, um, and History of the World, which is not Mel Brooks' best film, but it's got a lot, I know, <laughs> a lot of stuff in it that I know my son would laugh at, so we, we watched that. And he's only so far seen... Um, Holy Grail and Life of Brian, but he's now a massive Monty Python fan as well. So, nice. but yeah, yeah, yeah. He, it's always important to do things in the right order. Like, I, I couldn't really show him Galaxy Quest unless he'd seen some original series Star Trek. Oh, yeah. You know, you have to see that before you see Galaxy Quest, or it just won't make as much sense. So, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, uh, I know that we only had 40 minutes with you today, so uh, we'll let you, you get back to your job creating all the awesome content well actually you said you're on you're kind of on a break now so yeah i might let you back to your break (laughs) i might take a nap now or something (laughs) (laughs) i do i do have stuff to do so (laughs) very cool but but thanks for having me back yeah thank you so much again for coming on we really appreciate that so much for you taking the time of your day to come on and talk to us no worries no worries so, yeah, so thank you again, uh, and we, we will let you go, sir. All right. Thanks very much. It was a great pleasure. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. our show for the day we want to thank Hal Hickle one more time for coming on and talking to us about Pacific Rim taking some time out of his day to talk to us guys uh, don't forget you can follow him on Twitter at Hal Hickle H-A-L 
H-I-C-K-E-L. You can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Mark Vibbert, M-A-R-C-V-I-B-B-E-R-T. And I'm at Woolbinkle, W-U-L-L-B-I-N-K-L-E. Or you can follow the show at Animated Podcast. Uh, you can also feel free to email us at animationfascinationpodcast at gmail.com. Visit our site at animationfascination.wordpress.com. Or you can join the over 430 some odd people that have already liked us on Facebook and search for us there and like us yourself. Uh, so I'm Mark Herbert for myself, John Huber, and our guest, Hal Hickel. Thank you for listening and make sure to tune in again next time, guys. Later. Bye-bye. So the next thing we're going to be talking about is uh, just hit kind of the, 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 the Matt Matt couldn't make it today so oh well that's uh, I'm sorry I can't do it then no <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't do mornings obviously <laughs> yeah right. this is the end was the movie that I laughed at the most this year I, I enjoyed that one. oh man you need yeah, to see that gotta go pick my dad up from the airport that was fun boys. All right. <laughs> See you later, Jesse. All right. The person you are calling is unavailable. Leave a message, and they'll call you back just as soon as they can. Ah!